Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. Here's a change of schedule. Beginning September 9th until October 14th, we will be meeting at 8.30 a.m., 9.45 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 12.45 p.m. We are located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. So it should be harder to build houses in a flood zone. You know, it just sounds like common sense, right? But it was 2017, Hurricane Harvey meandered through Houston, dumping 40 inches or more of rain. It prompted 17,000 rescues, 30,000 people were displaced, and it caused $125 billion in damage. Pretty crazy. But it's not like we didn't know it was going to happen. More than half of the houses were actually built in the 100-year flood zone. More than that were built in the 500-year flood zone. And engineers and others were warning the city that these floods are becoming way more common and that you're not even ready for a modest flood. So it's not like this really should have surprised anyone because building in a floodplain ought to have better regulation. Should take a little bit more planning because getting caught in a flood can not, not only is it just stupid scary, it can be deadly. Actually, I remember as a kid in New Jersey. So there are parts of New Jersey that flood. I was in Lincoln Park, that's where I grew up, and uh, it's near Wayne, and uh, it is uh, prone to flooding. And so uh, there was one time, I don't even know what happened and how we ended up there, but my mom and I ended up driving through this area where the water was rapidly rising. And I guess we were trying to get home, and this was the fastest route to get home. And so, you know, she decided she was going to make it through the you know, the water that was covering the street, but it got too much for the car. And so we couldn't make it through. And all of a sudden the water keeps rising and it's like coming in underneath the doors. And like, it was like just sheer panic for a while there. It ended up not being an issue. We got out just fine and all that, but, but it's terrifying, the thought of it. So out of control, watching this happen around you. That's why storms and flooding have long become powerful metaphors in literature. They're used all the time, this sort of storm imagery, used by poets and prophets to capture these sudden and cataclysmic catastrophes that destroy lives. Shows up in all sorts of different literature. Because they're natural disasters, they often show up as a symbol of God's judgment. So I think we can all agree this morning that to prepare for the inevitable metaphorical storms that are headed our way is a good idea. I think that's, an, that's a give me. I think all of us can agree that it, we ought to be ready. So that's why we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, if you could open up in a Bible to that passage, that would be great. And leave it open because we're going to be in and out of that text a couple of times throughout the message here. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount by way of context. We've been studying it actually all summer 
and we are coming to the end. This is the end of our series, The Difference That Jesus Makes. We start a new series next week, but this is also the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this particular section, Jesus is going to end the whole of the sermon with this very powerful parable. But right before our section, there are these four contrasts. One of them we looked at last week. We're skipping two of them. And then the one that we're doing today. There's the contrast between the narrow and the wide gate. That's what we looked at last week. There's the good and the bad tree. There's the true and the false disciples. And then there's the wise and the foolish builder that we look at here. But in all of these, Jesus is trying to end the sermon with a very clear decision or comment, really, a statement that is something to the effect of you are either for him or you are against him. And he is encouraging a decision for each person. All of these contrasts make the same point. You're going to be either on this side or you're going to be on this side. And on this side, you don't have him. And on this side, you have him. And his encouragement is to pick the side that he is on. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So we have these two houses. I like to picture them as two identical houses. Because I don't think there was any real difference between them from what you could see. You know, maybe both of them had a nice little picket fence or something like that. You know, I think both of them may have had this beautiful view of the Sea of Galilee, right? That's where Jesus is sort of teaching this, this idea here. I think both of them might be filled with you know, smiling kids and happy parents and both of them will provide comfort, recreation, security. See, there's, there's no difference when you're looking at them from the outside. But there is a difference. One of them has a dog. <laughs> and one has a cat. It's right there. You could see it. You could see it in the text. Now... There, there is a deadly difference here. One person was a fool and the other wasn't. The other was wise. I think it's easy for us to make things look good on the outside. It's easy to give, you know, your life a spit shine. You know, a few well-placed social media pictures will let everyone know just how great things are going in your life. You know, slap some old paint on the house, polish that car that sits out front. Because we want to look good on the outside. But the storm reveals what's really going on under the surface of things. Because the storm is definitely coming. So around the Sea of Galilee, again, the area where Jesus has been teaching, this is in Israel, the sand was like rock solid. It's not like the sand that we sort of get in the summer. You know, you walk out there, it's all squishy. It's not like that at all. It's, it's rock solid. It's been dry for months and months and months all along that kind of the coastal region of the lake. Might even seem strong enough to build on. 
but only a fool would do it because everybody in the area knows that the storms are coming. The rainy season in Palestine aligns with our winter and spring. And so, of course, if you've been around for more than a year, you know it happens, this, hold on, every year. Believe it or not, it's pretty predictable. I mean, is anyone here surprised? Like in a little bit, like the, the leaves are going to start to change, right? And you're going to be like, oh, what's going on? I can't understand. What is this magic? Like, you know what's going on. The leaves are changing because they change every year. And the first snow is going to fall, hopefully in like January. Uh, but, uh, you know, the first snow is going to fall. And you're not going to be like, oh, my goodness. This is white magic from the skies of manna. From, you know, you're going to know exactly what it is because the seasons happen with a ferocious regularity. See, this is why you're, you're sort of a fool if you're going to build in an area that is soon going to be drenched with the rainy season. And that whole surface is going to be completely different really soon because Israel's known for these torrential rains that happen in the rainy season. They flood the valleys, these little dry wadis that sort of like feed that whole area and, and flood waters will rush through all of these areas. The storms are coming. And what are these storms going to reveal about your lives? What are they going to reveal about your soul? What will the storms tell us about your trust in Jesus? Because remember, the storm is guaranteed. You know, it's kind of a little aside. You can actually see in verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. You know what's neat? That's the identical phrasing to verse 27, which is the fool's house. Listen, the storm is coming. And Christian, you're not going to be excluded. Sometimes we think that, right? We're like, oh, man, now I'm a follower of Jesus, right? And so, you know, that must mean I'm going to get off the hook on this thing. Like, Jesus is going to make sure I don't have any problems. And no, no, the same storm. It is described exactly the same way. In my picture of this, it is the exact same storm. And it is pummeling both houses. You will experience these storms. That is inevitable. And I think the storms that Jesus refers to here, they go beyond sort of a few challenging circumstances, just because of the language that's used here and elsewhere in the Bible. So when we think of a storm, we kind of think of the storms of life, right? The difficult trials that we face and we think, you know, I'm going through this tough time. It's like a storm. But there's another storm that the Bible talks about. It's when God shows up to judge sin. Often throughout the scriptures, when God shows up to judge sin and rebellion, storm language is used. Fury and lightning and thunder and clouds. And they use this storm sort of imagery to describe that kind of day. It's really also called the day of the Lord. But that all points to a final day of the Lord, which is the final judgment that happens on the whole of the earth when every single person through all of history will stand before God and be judged for what we did with what we had here. What we did with Jesus, how we lived our lives, the sacrifices made or neglected, and that is the final judgment, and we call that the day of the Lord, like the big day of the Lord. So you might, you might think about it like this, because wherever the episodic judgments come throughout the Bible, 
they, they can be the storms of God's wrath. And they all are precursors to the final judgment. They're almost as if they're reminders that this is not our home. These storms come and they remind us of the, of the final storm that is to come yet in the future. The promissory storm, you might say. These are the promissory notes of that promised storm. You can think of them as the types of storms then, kind of a summary of this. You have the, you have the storms of your life, right, of life. Just this is your storms of life. The, the, the things that happen, the temptations that come, the trials that hit you, and, and these are the things that cause tumult in your soul, and they call, cause you to go deeper or to, to move away from Jesus. They're the storms of life, and they, they churn things up for you, mostly in a personal or family sort of way. But then there's the storm of your life, because everyone will have a final storm. The final day of judgment, your last day on earth and your first day in eternity, that is the storm of your life. Like it is a big deal because that's it. Game over, put all the pieces back in the box. That is your final storm that you will not live through. Then there's also the storm of life, the final storm that will actually end the whole world as we know it. And the Bible sort of telescopes all of these storms, often referring to them as, as the day of the Lord leading up to the final day of the Lord. Jesus has been using this sort of language throughout the Sermon on the Mount, talking in terms of both your personal experience and a far more global experience, far more universal experience of these storms. And I think he captures all of them. And the point he's making here is that the storms are always brewing and that we can never really be sure when one of them will try to wreck us. Storms will often show up in our lives unannounced as very strong and powerful temptations to do things our way rather than do them God's way. We've all experienced it and every one of us has been pummeled by these throughout our lives. Some of these storms will be temptations to sin in some way, to cheat on a test or to spread lies or gossip or disrespect another person. Other storms might tempt you to doubt God, to fret, to worry, to begin to act like a child who doesn't know that they have a loving heavenly father. Storms will tempt us to take ethical shortcuts or to worship material things or to find our comfort and our security in the things of this world rather than the eternal world. This is what we've been looking at for the whole of the summer. These are all the same themes and ideas that Jesus has been hitting on. And Jesus says, listen, you want to know how you can be ready for any of these? You build on the rock. You build on the rock. Now in Palestine, in, in Israel... The bedrock is often pretty deep. It could be, it could be 10 feet below the surface, which means you've got you to gotta do some serious digging to get down to the rock. This is important because for most of us, we don't want to do that extra work, that extra effort. It's easier just to build on the surface. I mean, heck, there's no excavating. It's a lot cheaper, a lot easier. There it is. The, the, the ground looks firm enough. Let's just build on it. Let's not worry about what goes on underneath this foundation. Let's just build on it. No big deal. You guys, some of you have heard about the Millennium Tower in San Francisco. It's like a modern-day parable, really. So San Francisco built this big, beautiful, multi-million-dollar 
you know, tall building, tall by their standards, not by our standards, tiny little, little building, but by New York standards. But anyway, it's, for them, it's very impressive, very big, uh, very big, and we're very proud of them that they pulled it off. However, um, but they, they really could have used some of our engineers um, like from New York because uh, they found out shortly after it was up, the foundation started cracking and showing these stress seams and marks like that, and, and they started taking measurements. They found out the whole building is sinking the whole building, but it's not sinking even, it's sinking like this. So it's off like 14 inches from where it was already, and no one's sure if it's gonna stop. Because they, they, they decided to build it, and they, they use this kind of like friction pylons thing, and you drive these pylons down enough, and once they're really hard to drive in anymore, then you can build your building on it. That's kind of the idea of my lay version of this there. I should ask, does this sound about right? And so you're, all right, close enough. So, but, uh, but, uh, God, I'm a pastor, give me a break. So, but uh, the point is, uh, the, the point was that they didn't go down to the bedrock. And so this thing started sinking because the friction wasn't enough to keep the thing and there's some torque factors, it's twisting. But anyway, all of this, and you're like, well, wait, what's going to happen to the thing? Well, the good news is eventually it's going to stop sinking. You know, when the pylons actually hit bedrock, <laughs> that's when it will probably stop. And so who knows what's going to happen? Massive lawsuits and all of this, as you would expect. It happens. Got to build on the rock. And Jesus makes it plain what he means when he says build on the rock. Look in verse 24. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. He gives us the answer because it's so tempting for us to say, listen, what's going on here is Jesus says, build on him. He's the rock. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. And we interpret, we kind of bring all those ideas from the other parts of the Bible into this. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's saying just simply follow me. If this is between those who follow me and those who don't follow me. I think it's more nuanced than that. I don't think this is an allegorical parable. I think what he's saying is, if this is a choice between obedience and disobedience. This is a choice between those pe these people who hear what I say and do it and those who hear what I say and refuse to do it. That's the solid rock that he wants us to build on. Now, last week, we explained that the first purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to let us know that we can never be good enough to get to heaven. And this is an important an important thing for us to remember. In fact, if you missed last week, it's great to go listen to it because, again, I had to split this message in two to fit. And so the, the, the Sermon on the Mount has two purposes, and you really need them both. Otherwise, you're going to hear one, and you're going to run off in, in, the, in the wrong direction with this thing. But today, we're talking about the second reason for the Sermon on the Mount, which is to explain what it looks like when we actually obey Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount paints the picture. So you can think of it like this. Last week, it was Jesus saying, listen, you can't do it. You need Jesus. You can't do it. So you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you realize, oh my goodness, I do lust. Oh my goodness, I do have anger. Oh my goodness, I'll never be more righteous than the Pharisees. And, and there's going to be all of these problems and, and I'm not going to be able to do it. And you get to the end of it. Like you would if you had really understood the Ten Commandments in the, old, in, the, in the Old Testament era. You would read through these things and you would go, I can't do it. I need God's grace. I need his forgiveness. I need a mediator. I need Jesus. And so when you read through it and you meditate on it, that's the natural result we're supposed to have. But then once you have Jesus, everything changes. Now the message to you is you can do it because you have Jesus. And this is a huge shift that I think many of us forget is an essential part of the Christian life. Listen, no person will enter the kingdom of God because of our obedience. I know that. 
and no person will enter the kingdom of God without obedience. We have to hold these two truths in tension. They have to be held together in the life of the, the genuine follower of Christ. It is true that every single person is saved through God's grace, through faith in Christ alone. Absolutely. And it is also true that God's grace in a person's life will inevitably result in obedience. This is what James tells us, chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers and sisters? James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say to me, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Or think of James chapter 1. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Over and over we hear these kinds of warnings, these kinds of encouragements to obedience. And in this way, entrance into God's kingdom is based on obedience. In fact, the chief characteristic of the follower of Christ throughout the whole of the Bible is obedience. The will of God is not meant to merely be admired and praised. It's meant to be done. You're not supposed to like, you know, pick up the Bible and critique or even appreciate it for its great ethical teaching. It's supposed to be obeyed. You know, you might say, oh, wow, the scriptures, they present such a beautiful picture of humanity and of the future and of hope. Absolutely. But are you actually doing what the scriptures say to do? Because it's going to come down to obedience. You know, we're part of a, a growing church. We have thriving ministries. We're super excited about all of this. That's great. It's fine. But are we obeying Jesus? Because that's what he's going to be looking at. You know, are we becoming who he told us to become? Are we trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation? And are we following his ethical commands as our only guide for life? You know, it's hard to recount how much good the Catholic Church has done in the world throughout the centuries. Hospitals built, the teaching that was done, comfort offered, community development that has taken place. It would be hard to capture the incredible amount of good. But you think that's what they're going to be known for and remembered for? Of course not. Because so many of them decided that they refused to obey God's commands on sexual ethics. That's what we're going to remember. That's the black mark that's going to go down in history. You might think, oh man, everything is going up and to the right. That's fantastic. Big things happening. That's fantastic. I'm so glad. Jesus says, so what? If you're not going to obey. And the beauty of this is you can. If you're a follower of Christ here this morning, this is the choice that makes the difference. So often, Bible teachers and, and, and pastors and, and many Christians, we like to talk about, you know, the, kind of the, the contrast in the world. And we, and we use language like, 
you know, hey, listen, just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that, you know, the, the lives of Christians are any different from the lives of, of unbelievers. I mean, I've, we've all heard this said. I've said it myself. Listen, I'm just a beggar who found food, and, and there's just more beggars out there who are needing food, and I'm just trying to help other beggars find food. You know, we're just a group. I'm, I'm sick, and you're sick, and, and because we're all sick, we all just need to find the great physician. And, and, and I understand this, there's, this is true. This, this language is true. And this is, this is how we explain the, away the fact that Christians and non-Christians often have nearly identical lives, except, of course, that Christians have faith. That's always the qualifier we throw in. Yeah, we're, we're, like, we're the same, except, except, you know, we have faith. This is how we explain away the moral failures of our leaders. We make excuses for Christians who continue in sin. Hey, man, we're all broken. You know, we're all broken. We're just sinners saved by grace. This is that... You know, the lives of Christians, they don't have to look any different. They often don't look any different from non-Christians. And we insist the only difference between Christians and non-Christians is that we profess faith in Jesus, and now he's obligated to take us to heaven. All right. I mean, really, is that the sort of cheap grace that we've been reading about in the Sermon on the Mount? Is that what Jesus has been telling us? I think in our efforts to protect the purity of the gospel message, trying to make certain that people don't depend on their own works to get to heaven. We constantly talk about God's grace, which is great. We emphasize that it isn't about morality. It's not how we behave that gets us into heaven. It's justification by faith through grace and grace alone. Right. But I think with an unbalanced emphasis, we end up truncating the very power of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and, and the impact that the cross was designed to make in how we actually live. God doesn't save us from hell and then refuse to save us from our sin. In an article from Desiring God Ministries, it states that God does not have a type of saving grace that once given leaves its recipient unchanged. Saving grace not only justifies the ungodly, but trains us. And this grace is a more effective teacher than any other teacher in the world. See, we're able now to say no to sin. You know what, Christian? Do you know that you really can stop gossiping? You can. You have the power of God residing in your soul. You can stop lying and you can stop stealing. And you can really make progress against sloth and gluttony and envy and rage. You can. Because we're no longer the victim of our addictions. We can break the hold that pornography has on us. We can. This is the power of the gospel. How many of us are dependent on self-medicating rather than trusting in God? How many need pharmaceuticals to take off the edge rather than deepening our obedience to Jesus? Do you know as, as a child of God, we have the right and the power to resist every and any temptation that comes our way. We have his resurrection power 
working in our souls. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit promised to us. Listen, I'm not talking about perfectionism here. I'm, I'm, I'm not so naive as that. What I'm saying is that it is not our moral failures that bring glory to Jesus. You know, we fail, we're like, well, that's just grace of God. Look, now we got it all. Look, now God gets more glory. Jesus gets more glory because I'm such an abject failure. It's not what brings him glory. It's an increasing measure of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit growing and taking root in your soul and, and offering its fruit and its shade to a world that is hungry for it. We have this incredibly great work to do. And Jesus has done this mighty, powerful change in us. We have been reborn, recreated in his image. And he is sending us out into the world to lay siege against the gates of the enemy. That is our calling. And the world gets to see our lives. And they get to give glory to Jesus for the, cha for the change that is ever more evident because we really are the salt of the earth that it so desperately needs and we really are the city on the hill and we're the light that ought never to be hidden I'm going to ask the band to come up and they're going to be leading us in a song as they, we prepare our hearts to go to the Lord's table but as they do that I'm going to ask that you guys would stand and uh, I'm going to offer a prayer for us toward this end Father, what we want is to experience more of this kind of life. For those of us who are here this morning who have trusted you as Lord and Savior, may we remember, Father, that it isn't just to be saved at the end of time, it's to be saved every single day from the tyranny of our own sin, our own rebellion, our own failures. Father, when, when we succumb, when we give in, we have an advocate. We have the cross. We have forgiveness. We have hope. But Lord, we also have the strength to resist each and every day. Time and again, not in our own ability, but in yours. Pray that you would make it more and more real in us. Amen.